Lord, we do lift up for you to you, uh, Jim and Cheryl Farr, as they are, will be traveling back this coming week. We pray for safety as they travel, and and also just for comfort for their hearts and their daughter's heart with the loss of their son-in-law. Uh, even when something's anticipated like this, it's it's very hard, and and um, just especially for their daughter that you would give her wisdom and you'd use this to draw her closer to you, Father, and um, just pray that you'd allow Jim and Cheryl to be a ministry to her and that you'd be ministering to them during this time as well. Lord, I thank you um, for the good report from Jim and Nancy's father, and uh, just pray, Lord God, that he would be able to be released from the hospital today in good health and, and that he would continue to uh, improve. <coughs> Lord, we do uh, just uh, thank you for your, for our church body and, and the way that you can move in our hearts to come together uh, to help one another, and both with uh, Josh and Brittany's roof and Rhonda's roof from last weekend, and and um, just ask, Lord, that you would um, allow your Holy Spirit to speak loudly and clearly to us when you want us to move and um, be a ministry to our church family. Lord, we lift up to you our um, Children's Church Summer Program as they look at the difference between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness this summer. Just pray, Lord God, that the truth of the gospel would sink deeply into their hearts and minds and that you'd use everything from the songs to the skits to the lessons to the games to the crafts to just really um, hit home the truth of your word, and the truth of who Jesus is. Lord, you have blessed my heart so much this week, just being reminded of who Jesus is. Lord, I just pray that you bless your word this morning, that you would allow my words to still be guided by you, even with all my preparation, Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit would reign true and strong. And Lord, that you would not leave us as we are. Lord, we need you and we need more of you. Um, Lord, uh, um, we just pray that you would bless this time and be honored by it. And I pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be doing a little bit of that this morning. Well, I am uh, eager to come to you this morning and open up the book of John. We're going to move kind of slowly through John 1. And John is 21 chapters, so we certainly aren't going to be able to move through every chapter as slowly as we will through John 1. But, but John 1 is significant, and um, I hope that you're able to see the significance of the first five verses this morning as um, in studying it was made so significant for me. And um, I hope that be, summer being as it is, that... Uh, just as we uh, have a lot of people out today um, on vacations and out and about and whatnot, that when you are out this summer, you will get a hold of the CD or listen online because moving through the Gospel of John, I believe, is going to be transformational for us individually and as a body because you cannot look upon the person of Jesus Christ for who he is and not be transformed. And that is a big part of what we're getting at this morning. 
You know, I had two dreams recently that made me wake up and be thankful that they were a dream. Um, you know, it's funny, and you've probably experienced that, where you're just, like, experiencing this angst, and then you wake up and you're like, oh, thank goodness for, you know, nor reality. Um, the most uh, recent involved me being entrusted with a responsibility by someone I greatly respected. And while they were away, I completely messed up, messed up in carrying out my responsibility. Actually, uh, details, it was like my dad was like teaching this course and um, I was supposed to go and fill in somehow, which I don't know how I would be a thermodynamicist, you know, all of a sudden. But, um, and, uh, and I just totally blew it. And I remembered both the students and the fellow professors and, and my dad communicating their disappointment with me as a substitute or in some way. And I was glad to wake up from that dream and realize it wasn't reality. And um, also another dream I had recently was I was dreamed that I, it involved me getting up early uh, while it was still dark and going out to rob a bank. Yeah. As my team and I were returning to the home that we were staying at after dawn, after sun, the sun was up, um, I realized as I looked around that all of my team were children. <laughs> I also realized that their parents were awake and milling about the house that we were staying in, and I found myself turning to them and saying, just tell them we went for a walk before the sun was up. You know, it, it was like, this is not going to go well. As you can imagine, I was glad that I woke up and realized that this was a dream and I was not going to be facing the consequence of robbing a bank and not doing a good job of it and, um, and getting caught, which I was certain I was going to. Uh, I'm glad I didn't choose a career in robbing banks. Um, as I said, both dreams made me glad that I was waking up to reality. John's desire from his gospel that he writes is that we might not wake up in this life or in the life to come with horrible regret. Rather than waking up and being glad that it was all a dream, he doesn't want us to wake up to the reality of our choices and realize that we are lost. This is why he tells us about his gospel. As we read last week, toward the end of his gospel, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's desire is that we might find salvation through trusting alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let's, so let's dive into what he wrote in his first 18 verses. We're just going to open up the first five this morning. And I can tell you now that John comes out swinging, making some very strong statements about who Jesus is. He writes in the first 18 verses of John 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now this is John the Baptist. Okay, and everywhere else that we will see John refer to himself, he will refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And partly that is that he would not confuse himself with this John being John the Baptist, but we'll get into that when it comes. So there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, who gave the right to become children of God, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see why I look forward to preaching these verses? Man. So continuing on. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Our main idea that we want you to get this morning, that John wants you to get this morning, I can say that with confidence, is don't miss the significance of who Jesus is. Don't miss the significance of who Jesus is. John is helping to make sense of what took him three years plus the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to finally understand. He's making sure that he is getting across what he thinks are crucial points for us, his readers. You know, kind of like <clears throat> the key to a map helps us to understand the differences between, say, the capital city and another city, right? If you're looking at a map, and you're like, okay, well, this one's got a star on it. Well, we look down at the key, and okay, a star means that's the capital, right? So the key of the map helps you to know that. It helps you to know the difference between a fast-moving interstate and a slow-moving two-lane highway. If you want to get somewhere quickly, you want to know that. So the key helps you to understand the map. The key helps you to understand the difference between a river and maybe a shortcut that you're looking for. All right. If you're looking at the map and you're like, oh, this line here will get me there, and you get there and there's just a river here. Well, if you'd looked down at the key, you'd known, okay, oh, the blue line, that means it's a river. Okay? So the key is important to understanding the map. 
In the same way, John sets out to give us the key for the gospel that he is writing. Okay? He's saying, I know that I'm writing about a man, but he is so much more than a man. He's the God-man. One writer states it this way, It took John more than three years to figure out the fullness of who Jesus was. But he does not want his readers to take more than three verses to find out what took him so long to know. He wants us to have in our minds fixed and clear from the beginning of his gospel the eternal majesty and deity and creator rights of Jesus Christ. So it's appropriate that we follow John's argument with our principles this morning. But first we need to deal with who is Jesus as John describes him. Because John describes him as the Word. So the question here is who is Jesus? And this is basically what we're unpacking this morning from these first five verses. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John seems to open up his writing about Jesus in a dramatic way that builds suspense by calling Him the Word. You know, kind of like, Who's this? who is this he's talking about? We see the same sort of thing in his writing about Jesus in his first epistle, which is 1 John. And if you look at 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then skipping to verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim, also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see how in his epistle, he also kind of builds this anticipation. Who is this he's talking about? And that's what he's doing in John chapter 1, calling Jesus the Word. So he's building this anticipation, calling Jesus the Logos, the Word. John's answer to who is Jesus has to do with the message that Jesus is. Okay, catch that. It's not the message of Jesus. It's the message that Jesus is for us. The answer here is that Jesus is God's message of wisdom. Or you could say God's message of salvation. He says that in the beginning was the word, the logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. We know that John is speaking about Jesus when he calls him the Word, uh, if, if you want to get technical, because we see in verse 14 that he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It might seem odd for us to call someone the Word. John calls Jesus the Logos, which means the spoken word. But it also involves the intended message or the intended wisdom behind that word. For instance, our word logic is partly from the Greek word Logos. 
Okay? And behind the word logic comes a whole system of thinking, right? In the same way, behind the word logos comes a whole system of belief, a whole message of what's important. And in calling Jesus the logos, he's calling Jesus the logic or the wisdom that helps life make sense. For the Jewish readers of this gospel, it carries a lot of significance. Throughout the Old Testament, wisdom is personified and embodied as the embodiment of God's way for us to live. The Ten Commandments were considered actually God's ten words or God's embodiment of, for life, of embodied wisdom for life. It's also significant that God created by the power of his spoken word. As we can read in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. For Greeks, wisdom or reason was thought to be very important to the universe. The Greeks even had a form of intelligent design without a belief in a creator God. It was thought that the logos, or wisdom, or reason, spawned the creation of the universe by the Greeks. Philo was a Hebrew writer who combined the Greek and Jewish philosophies. He taught that the spoken word of God which created the earth was actually the law of God, and it's the law of God then that man maintains order and structure in creation. And all of God's creative wisdom or law would have been embodied in this term, the logos, which means the message or the wisdom of God. Now, I'm pointing to these cultural ideas not as being true, but I'm just pointing out how significant this idea of Jesus being the Logos, how for the original readers it opened it up. It wasn't just what we think of as a word, but it opened it up when, when John called him the Logos. It's like, and, and in the beginning was the wisdom of God, the message of God, and he's saying, and it's embodied in this person of Jesus. It's not just for Jewish and Greek readers. There is so much wrapped up for us in Jesus being called the Word. As John Piper puts it this way, John calls Jesus the Word because he had come to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way that Jesus himself in his coming and working and teaching and dying and rising was the final and decisive message of God, Jesus himself. And he continues, or to put it more simply, what God had to say to us was who Jesus was and what he did. So it's not Jesus, that Jesus brought the word. It's not that he brought the message. Jesus himself, in what he did, in what he didn't do, in his daily life, in his actions, as he puts it, in his working, his teaching, his dying, his rising, was the final and decisive message from God for us. We're taught by John 1 this morning that Jesus is God's full and final message from him. 
We are taught in John 1 that Jesus is worthy to be our only object of faith for salvation. This is because he alone is the God-man. And, and we're going to expand on what it means that he is the God-man this morning. But for now, let's look at what faith is in our culture, okay? And we're going to look in terms of the, the math of multiplication, okay? Going back to uh, um, <clears throat> third grade math here, okay? Um, and I had to look up what these things are called, by the way. Okay, so factors of multiplication. Follow me here. Oh, did I do that? I did. You know, I corrected that at home this morning, and then I didn't save it before. Um, you were able to dip into those slides and change that? Okay, so 5 times 10 equals 50, all right? Shows how good I am here. Um, okay, so 5 times 10 equals 50. Now here, we have a factor times a factor equals the product. Right? That, that, that's simple here. The factor times the factor equals the product. The fact that my numbers are wrong up there doesn't mess it up. Um, now when it comes to, let's look at this in terms of factors of faith. Okay? And you kind of have this down at the bottom of your bulletin a little bit. When it comes to, and this is, you're not going to find this in a book. This is just kind of an object lesson here. If you think of it this way, the object of our trust times the amount of trust or the amount of faith that we have, think of that as being equal to the effectiveness of that faith. The object, so there's two factors involved in the effectiveness of saving faith. There's the object that we put faith in, and there's the amount of faith, right? And the equals out to the effectiveness of that saving faith. Now, the fact is that just like multiplication, there's two factors here. And one factor is the object of the faith, and the other factor is the amount of faith that we have. Now, let me show you here what is the today's new math of faith, okay? What I would call the religious new math. What we see today is that our culture has a way of treating objects of faith as if they don't really matter, okay? And so we're told it doesn't matter what you put your faith in as long as you are sincere. As long as you have a lot of faith. But as it is with true, with multiplication, a worthless object of faith, even if multiplied times ten times the faith, is still worthless. The new math of today's religious thought doesn't work. Zero, a worthless, and I intended these numbers to be there. Okay, yeah, following that. Zero, a worthless object of faith, times ten times the faith, doesn't equal ten. It equals zero. The new math of religious thought is, oh, good, it's worth ten. But an, a worthless object of faith times ten times of faith is worthless in its effectiveness to save. But the new math of today's religious thought says it doesn't matter what the object of faith is. As long as you really believe in it, 
But what they're really doing is they're just rubbing your head and saying, oh, you silly religious person. None of those faith things really exist. Just believe in something. Right? So that's the new math here. And we're, we're going to understand this a little bit more. Here is biblical Christianity. Okay? The object of faith is worth a million. And really, the faith that we have, we have faith in it, and John will help us to understand faith as being touching and tasting and seeing and believing and eating. And, and so I'm not saying, you know, just, just vote on something. It's, that's not what I mean by the, the amount of faith just being worth one. But it really isn't about our faith. It's about the object of faith. And what John is saying is the object of our faith is it. It is huge. It is, he is God. He is the creator. He is everything. And he's saying, I, I'm writing this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the only object that you can put your faith in, and it has the effectiveness to save, is what he's saying. Our meager faith multiplied by his worth causes us to be able to live in a relationship with God. That is grace. That our meager one point of faith makes us a son and daughter of God. Our meager one point of faith makes it so that God could never ever love us any more than he does. And he will never ever love us any less than he does. Because it's multiplied by the person of Jesus Christ. That is grace. This is simply a visual explanation of why we describe salvation as being easy. This is why as we teach our children, we don't want to teach them to have a lot of faith. We want to teach them who it is that they are to have faith in. This is why John is going to be revolutionary for us, I believe. The object of our salvation is so is worth so much. And that's why becoming a believer is just about realizing I can't get there on my own. My faith is meager. My sins disqualify me. But Jesus in the person and work that he has done and who he is is worth a million. And putting my meager faith on him for my salvation in his person and in his death and in his resurrection makes me a child of God. And saying, God, give it to me, please. I can go nowhere else for this. That is salvation. That is the gospel. So John starts to explain to us what is Jesus' proper value as our object of faith. And the proper value begins with understanding him, as I said, as the one and only God-man. Jesus is eternal, is the first thing he hits on. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's reference back to in the beginning rings of the language from Genesis 1.1 and would be meaning before anything existed. 
We'll see this more clearly in verse 3. But his Jewish readers would have understood him as saying, before the prior limits of time or space. And there's three aspects here um, that are being pointed to in, in Jesus' sharing position in the Trinity among the Father and the Holy Spirit. First of these statements speaks to the fact that Jesus existed before creation. <clears throat> As I said. Um, and the second statement that the Word was with God speaks to Jesus' position in the Trinity. He pre-existed creation as God does, but he also existed alongside of God as a separate member of the Trinity. And then we're told, and the Word was God. The third of these statements speaks to Jesus being a member of the Trinity. Okay, existing alongside of and a part of. This means that Jesus shares the same essence and attributes of God the Father and Holy Spirit. Everything that is true about the triune God is true about Jesus. This is why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Now to some degree, both Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and a, a plethora of other religious systems would consider what I just said to be heretical. But we'll touch on cult theologies in a little bit here. John uses verse 2 to re-emphasize the truths of verse 1. When he says, he was in the beginning with God. It's Jesus in the, being in the beginning with God points to, again, his pre-existence before creation, his distinctiveness from the Father and the Holy Spirit, and his inclusion with the Trinity, his deity being he and the Father and the Holy Spirit making up the triune God. As the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it, the Word has always been in relationship with God, the Father. Christ did not at some point in time come into existence or begin a relationship with the Father. In eternity past, the Father, God, and the Son, the Word, have always been in loving communion with each other. Now our second point that unpacks the value of Jesus as our object of faith is that Jesus is our self-existent creator. We're told all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Recall that in John's map key that we're given here, for us, that it puts the rest of the gospel into perspective. Okay, John wanted to make sure that we were not simply placing Jesus in, a, in, a, in the place of being a very powerful being, or a very godlike being. John wanted to make sure that he made it clear that what we were, will be studying is the work of God himself in the rest of his gospel. John, you know, he could have pointed to um, other attributes of Jesus that came out, his, his godness that came out in the work that he did. Other attributes certainly could have been highlighted in his gospel. He could have pointed to the fact that Jesus being spirit and when he desired, could walk through walls. That being an aspect of God. He could have pointed to Jesus' power over creation, which we will see as he calms seeds and heals diseases. 
But if you recall from last week, Gnosticism was taking root in Greek culture at this time. So what we're getting at here is, why does John hit right from the beginning these aspects, these attributes of Jesus' eternality and his self-existence? And you remember, Gnosticism was taking root. It was a growing philosophy in the church as well, sadly. Gnostic belief, just to review here again, Gnostic belief taught that God is spirit, and therefore everything spirit is good, and matter be, being not a part of God in their thought is being, must be evil. Okay? So Gnostic thought was that creation was the work of much lesser spirits that had spun off of God. He created lesser spirits, and those lesser spirits created other spirits until they were less godly enough to create the world. So this was Gnostic thought. For Gnostics, it would have been easy to understand Jesus as being one of the highest created spirits. They would have, he would have been reverenced by them. He would have been prayed to. He would have even been worshipped as being 99.9% God. But he would not have been understood as being fully God, equal in essence to God the Father. Such thought had spread into the church through the teachings of men like Serenthus, as we mentioned last week. He was a contemporary of John, and the two men actually lived in the city of Ephesus at the same time. So this sort of teaching is very much in the back of John's mind as he writes this gospel. Serenthus taught that Jesus was an ordinary man upon whom the Christ descended at his baptism. And while this God of the Christ inhabited Jesus, during that time he was Jesus Christ. But he taught that this godness of the Christ left him before his crucifixion. And this followed the Gnostic thought that... Um, God, or a spirit so close to being 99.9% .9 God, would never involve himself in suffering like the crucifixion. So the thought was this, this, the Christ left Jesus. And so Jesus was a created being, and this created high spirit joined up with him at some point. This is what was being taught in the church in John's day. So you can see how this is in the background of his mind. Let's look at how John is refuting this Gnostic teaching in verse 3 here. John states that Jesus is a part of the creative work of God. All things were made through him. In, this is stating that everything that was made came through him. But this statement, by, with this statement, it could be assumed that Jesus was just the first created thing. And then everything else was made through him. Um, this is why John follows with the next statement, without him was not anything made that was made. John is saying that everything that fits into the category of having been made came from Jesus. He was a part of it. And unless he made himself, Jesus fits in the, create, the category of creator, not the category of created. That's what John is saying here by saying, without him was not anything made that was made. 
That's, that's not a mistake that the word any and thing are separate from each other. You know, we have in English, was not anything made. No, this is saying, was not anything made that was made apart from him. Nothing that was made was made. I'm, I'm confusing myself even now. So, Nothing that is created is what's called self-existent. Jesus is self-existent. He, he attributes his existence to no one else. His existence is self-existent. And Jesus is uniquely self-existent, which is a description only of God. Now, I know we're going to getting into to other theologies and things like this, and I know this is kind of deep um, that we're walking here, but we will benefit in the weeks to come and in the months to come from it. But what took hold of the church for centuries as a grandchild of Gnosticism is what is known as Arianism. The basic agreement of Arian teachings is there was a time when Jesus was not. Okay, in other words, there was a there was some point in time when Jesus did not exist. That is the agreement of Arian theology. Okay, so Jesus came into existence at some point is Arianism. There are many religions that are spin-off of biblical Christianity in an Arian way. Jehovah's Witnesses would argue that Jesus is a lesser God among many gods. Um, in fact, because they believe Jesus was created by Jehovah, the Jehovah Witnesses Bible states John 1.1 1, 1 this way. It's from the New World Translation Bible, the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Originally the, bur the, originally the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Um, now, I have some further notes, and um, I, can, I can illustrate for you from the Greek, the, the, um, the theos ein hos logos, which is the word was God, um, and uh, can, can explain some more to anyone that would, is curious or would like to know more about this after the search, but we're not going to go any deeper into this right now. But for now, you need to realize that this is a translation out of necessity. And this is because of the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses is an Arian theology, believing that there was a time when Jesus was not. Because of that, they have to translate this verse in this way. But returning to our passage here, any teachings that place Jesus in high regard as a form of God, but make him a created being or a lower God, are in essence denying who he truly is. And in their essence, they are stealing the joy of knowing Jesus for who he is, the God-man and our Savior. And in place of being our Savior, he's typically made to be our greatest example. And the followers of these religions are left to work and scrape in order to try to gain certain rewards. These rewards might be becoming a part of the special 144,000 of the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
or it might be working toward, as Mormons believe, working toward becoming a god themselves and one day ruling their own planet. Well, you know, we can snicker about that, but this comes from this idea that Jesus is a god. Mormons believe that Jesus and God at some... No, I'm sorry. Jesus and Lucifer at some point were brothers and offsprings of God the Father. And then he becomes our example then. So we're pursuing godness because he's a little bit less. So, like all false teachings, these must get to where they are by both lowering who Jesus is and elevating mankind. So in our factors of faith example, we see here a workspace religion are an, an, a quote-unquote elevated Jesus, meaning he's elevated from us, but he's downgraded from being 100% God just as much as God the Father is. Okay? So, in this, in this scheme, that object of faith, oh, that's really strong, you know, it's worth a thousand. But times our works, which we are told with Scripture, our works are worth, are, are worse than filthy rags. It's times zero. And so the effectiveness of that faith is zero. John takes us into the joy of who Jesus is as God, our creator, and intended to be our treasure by describing him thirdly here, that Jesus is our source of life and light. It says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Both the ideas of Jesus being life and light are going to come up over and over again in this gospel. As, <clears throat> as with his being the creator of all things, Jesus is starting out with his gospel, letting us know how central Jesus is. I'm sorry, John is starting out in his gospel, letting us know how central Jesus is here. Now, we're told in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life is our most precious possession, right? Without it, we ha just have nothing to live for. Right? We have nothing to live with. Without life, we don't exist. In fact, we can't even bring our own non-existence to happen. Because life is so powerful, right? Because even when we die in this life, guess what? We still have eternal life. And that life goes on either eternally separated from God or eternally with God. We can't even get rid of our own life. But John goes on to define the life that he's describing as being the light of men. Now, I can't fully grasp or explain the significance of life and light. But by explaining one with the other, I believe John is pointing to a fullness of life that comes through the light of the truth of who Jesus truly is and accepting that truth. Life is referred to 36 more times in John's Gospel, and most references are to eternal life or a life that has an eternal quality to it. Every religion views life and light as a good thing. 
That's because they're good and necessary. No one cherishes the idea of fumbling around in the dark. Every person considers enlightenment or illumination as being a good thing. But the fact is, what is considered today as being enlightenment or illumination, if it points us away from Jesus being our Savior and Lord, according to the Gospel of John, he tells us these philosophies lead to darkness. If that illumination or that enlightenment points us away from Jesus being the one and only Savior, in the same way that light is a good thing, in almost every religion, darkness is a bad thing. It describes a life that lacks quality because it, there is no light in it. We're told the light that is in Jesus shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome us. Come it. This tells us about the ability of this life and light that is in Christ. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, the NIV translates translate this, the darkness has not understood it. Okay? I think that John sort of means both of these translations by this full word that he uses for both overcome or understood. I think it's probably best to combine the two translations of understood or overcome, and you could combine it this way, saying the darkness can't figure out how to overcome Jesus. The most important point is that all that is good is found in Jesus, and all that is bad cannot defeat him. Jesus told a parable that the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field, and in joy he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. No, it was intended to communicate that nothing is more important than God's kingdom and being a part of it and being involved with it and being at work with it. The person of Jesus is at the center of the value of that kingdom. And wisdom calls us to treasure him more than anything else in order to obtain all that we can from him. We see a constant movement in our culture away from God's truth. Even in churches, we see Jesus minimized. Jesus is just sprinkled on our problems. And then we're taught about things that were, are thought to be more productive. The truth is that simply placing Jesus among other paths or other wisdoms to follow is to move away from the truth. To live without Jesus as our treasure is to put other things in place of what is most, most worthy from our lives, and that being Jesus. The answer to every addiction or every need for repentance is to put Jesus in his proper place, is to realize that he is that treasure in the field. And if we'd only be willing to sell that thing, to go and get him, we'd realize the answer to every addiction and every need for repentance. The more we move away from Jesus being for everyone and everything, the more we fall into darkness. 
And one of those signs that we can see is that what we go to in order for find, to find fulfillment. We mentioned last week, we go to false gospels. We go to things that we think, life is found in this thing. <clears throat> last week I referenced the way that we're killing ourselves with food that we eat. Now, I was pointing out that we have a way of boiling down food to just what we want from it and throwing out the rest. I'm not a crusader for healthy eating. Okay, I only use this example to point to how we've done this even more devastatingly with sex through pornography. The world is killing itself from the inside out as it extracts what it wants from sexual intimacy. And it throws away everything that it's intended to be. Now, no man or even woman with a pulse is immune to this temptation. Okay, So I say that to say I'm not standing up here asking that if you're struggling with pornography, what is wrong with you? That is not what I'm saying. Okay, When I say no person with a pulse is immune to this temptation. But it's time for us to get serious. Did you know that one in five mobile searches are for pornography? How many of you, how many of those phones do you think are owned by teenagers? Nine out of ten boys and six out of ten girls are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. Here's a statement from the Department of Justice. Never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. Well, here's what we're heading for. 50% right now, 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. But here's what Jill Manning, a sociologist, tells us. Research reveals that many systemic effects of internet pornography that are undermining an already vulnerable culture of marriage and family. Even more disturbing is the fact that the first internet generations have not reached full maturity. So the upper limits of this impact on marriage have yet to be realized. Guys, these are secular statistics and secular statements. You combine these facts and you realize the state of our culture is in dire shape. The saddest statistics of all, I think, are the ones that point to the fact that the church barely trails the world in this area. Because and this is the truth. It's because we ourselves are not believing that life is found in this person of Jesus Christ. Bottom line. That's what John is telling us. We are in the darkness because we are barely investing ourselves in the life which is our light in the darkness. So the darkness overtakes us. Because we are not investing ourselves in that life which is the light. As we talk about discipling people in our congregation, we're brought back to one truth again and again. 
that is this. It's about connecting believers to Jesus Christ. It's about helping them to learn from him and to grow in him. It's not about connecting them to a great author or to a new teaching or to this great way of thinking about things. It's about helping people be connected to Christ. And this, what we've been talking about today, is why it's powerful. It's about helping people having received Christ as their Savior, being trans, helping them to be transformed more and more into His likeness. Not the likeness of the person that might be coaching them. And, and we're working in the background, and, and I hope uh, this fall to, to be kind of unveiling some things for you, the congregation, of discipling methods that we're going to be looking at using. But the answer to whatever we are struggling with is allowing Jesus to fill the place in our lives that he deserves to have. In doing so, our lives will take on more life and more light in the darkness, and your life will not overcome, be overcome by it. Start here. Start by asking God to help you to make Jesus the treasure of your life that he deserves to be. You know, this is why it's so powerful to just go back to him, to go back to his life, to read of him, to look at him and say, Lord, I'm told this is the most important person that's ever existed. I'm told to make this person more and more of my life. Lord, Help me to do this. <clears throat> also, you know, if you're ready to know the full life and light of Jesus, just specifically we've talked about this area of pornography, I'd, help, I'd love to help set you up with someone that could help you walk through that. And you know what it's going to look like? Hey, let's get our eyes on Christ. Let's get our eyes off of this. Let's sell this. And let's go buy that treasure. That's what it's about. He is a treasure to have in our life. He is life. He is light. And the darkness cannot figure it out in order to overcome it. I'm going to close in prayer. And, and our guys are going to come up and lead us in 